Good evening, everybody. Happy Friday uh, here at Liberty Station. And as you know, Fridays, we're doing our best to make it uh, you just an ongoing event. Uh, we call it Federer Fridays because as far as I'm concerned, there are two men in America that are the most underutilized assets in America. And one is, of course, Congressman Bob McEwen, who we've had on the program. But without exception, this man, Bill Federer, uh, is the most underutilized asset in America. His insights on where where we've come from, where we're going, how history is so important and critical to the path forward. It's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. We can look back and see examples of it. And it puts everything into context. And nobody does it better than Bill Federer. And so we decided in, in the expanse of Liberty Station, uh, you and I said, let's make Fridays Federer Friday. Yeah, whenever possible, and, and when he keeps agreeing to be our friend. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I have to take notes every single time. Seriously, you get stretch marks on your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, Bryce and I are thrilled to invite our our constant Friday guest, Lord willing, because I know sometimes Bill can't do it, and sometimes we won't be able to do it, but we want to make every Friday a Federer Friday. Yep. And so without any further ado, let's welcome Friday's ongoing guest, uh, the prolific author and wonderful friend and dear sweet brother, Bill Federer. Hey, buddy. Hey, Rob. Bryce, great to be with you. You too. I, we, we were talking a little bit earlier before we, we came live and um, uh, this whole thing with the, the Supreme Court justice who is, you know, uh, being questioned and interviewed and she could not define what a woman is. Um, it was a Marsha Blackburn who asked, what yeah. is a woman? And and she said, I'm not a biologist. I can't answer that. It's like, what's two plus two? I, I can't answer that. I'm not a mathematician. What, you know, is it snowing outside? I can't answer that. I'm not a meteorologist. I mean, the stupidity of this. And that's where we are, Bill. And I posed a question to you. I said, is there any way to stop this? And you pulled out a quote, which didn't surprise me. Uh, but you pulled out a quote of a previous politician. I think you said from Illinois or Indiana. I can't remember. Uh, and I, I love the quote, and it's it's inspirational for folks if they they want to, you know, get crazy on this and and m make some waves. Share with everybody what that was, will you? Well, it's Senator Dirksen of Illinois, and the quote is, "When I feel the heat, I see the light." And of course, he was a. <laughs> There's um, a building in Washington, D.C. called the Dirksen Building, and it's right there in the Capitol complex. And uh, so this idea is that uh, James Buchanan won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1980 because he found out what politicians are motivated by, and it's wanting to get reelected. So he's an economist, and James Buchanan is studying GDP and debt ratio and all these uh, economic equations. And uh, he's wondering, why are the politicians continue, continuing to vote to increase debt? He goes, it's like the biggest item on the budget. It's like it, we're paying interest. And, and then he notices if the politician is up for reelection, they will vote to increase the debt so they can funnel money to their district and it'll help them get reelected. But they won't vote for the corresponding taxes to pay for it because that'll hurt their reelection. And then they just kick the can down the road and let the next Congress worry about it. And the next, the next, and this debt keeps growing larger and larger. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize because he found out that most politicians will do whatever it takes to get reelected. Now, thank God for the politicians with backbone and courage and will do what's right no matter what and are willing to not be reelected for the sake of principle. Uh, but that's the attitude you have to have, uh, that you're willing to stand up for truth if even if it costs you your seat, where the the other ones will sell their soul for their uh, reelection. But I, anyway, I, I I had told you that, uh, especially with the Supreme Court nominee, that uh, she seemed to avoid the questions, and they've been trained to avoid the questions. Um, and yet, I, I shared that quote with you from Winston Churchill because you know I'm going to be moderating a panel with 65 kind of intense personalities trying to get all of these organizations in California to row in the same direction to defeat to defeat these bills that are going before the legislature. Um, and that's to, you know, we're going to be doing that and working on that. But uh, I was I, I thought of the word fanatic because when you're trying to moderate 65 different organizations that want their, you know, 
unifying in California uh, for the same purpose with conservative principles is difficult. It seems like the left is unified. But I, I love this quote of a fanatic. It's one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject, Winston Churchill. But then you you wisely pointed out that the the secular progressive left has been trained not to even deal with the subject at hand. They're asked the question and they deflect it and they avoid answering it. Can you elaborate on that as you shared with, with Bryce and I? Yeah, it's called obfuscation. Obfuscation. It's intentionally being obscure in your speech. And the classic person is Talleyrand. So he was a French foreign minister and he survived being on Napoleon's staff. He survived the French directory when they're chopping off heads. He survived this and that. Uh, and he was uh, able to survive because he, he was always noncommittal. Uh, and he, uh, there's cartoons, you know, those editorial cartoons they would put in those early 1800 newspapers where it would have Talleyrand with like a half a dozen heads coming out of his neck um, mm-hmm. because he would speak from every side of his mouth on every issue. And uh, he became uh, infamous in American politics during the what's called the quasi-war with France. So after the revolution, we almost get into a war with France. The French were uh, capturing American ships, 300 of them, and we send ambassadors over to France saying, look, ever since your French Revolution, you've been uh, not the friend you used to be. And Talleyrand said, well, if you bribe me a million dollars under the table, I'll stop the French from uh, capturing American ships. And the cry went across America, millions for defense and not one cent for tribute. And so that is in our history books. But Talleyrand is the the famous person who uh, introduced this into politics and uh, politicians have studied it. How you can answer a question without answering the question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when say, you a, say this, a lot without saying anything. Yeah. So the, the candidate that is being considered for the Supreme Court is using obfuscation. As you mentioned, um, Marsha Blackburn, can you define a woman? I mean, here she is. She's touted as the first black woman to be put on the Supreme Court, and she cannot even define woman. Uh, anyone can see that there's a problem here. You know, uh, years ago I went to the zoo, and I asked the, the zoo person, you know, how can you tell the difference between a, um, uh, a male penguin and a female penguin? And they'll tell you. Uh, and the difference between a male monkey and a female monkey, and they'll tell you, a male snake and a female snake, and they'll tell you, and and they'll actually spend millions of dollars to design the uh, cage or the area where that particular animal is, so that they'll uh, the the men will be attracted to the women, or the the males will be attracted to the females, and they'll procreate. And right. they consider this like a, a big success if they can have, uh, you know, a baby rhino born, uh, you know, but but they have to make the 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 habitat natural so the they'll they'll mate between the males. So so you go to the zoo, it's like they can tell there is male, there is female. This is like not uh, rocket science. Um, I also thought it was obfuscation when Ted Cruz says I'm Hispanic. What uh, if I feel like I'm Asian um, and I bring I'm going to a college and they're discriminating against me uh, and I bring a lawsuit? Are you able to tell the difference between Hispanic and, and it, can I just feel like I'm Asian and then I'm Asian? And she's like, oh, I can't answer that. And then they ask her, when does life begin? Oh, I can't answer it. It's like you can't answer anything. Uh, you're just doing. But, but you're going to you're going to sit you're going to sit on the highest court of the land. I uh, just unconscionable it just doesn't it. it how did how did we get here to where we have a national stupidity, um, and and also such a fear that that some people truly believe this, others know it's a lie but are putting it forward for nefarious reasons, and the majority of Americans are too afraid to say the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Uh, how did we get to this this national psychosis of fear? And and I, I I we're also looking, Bill, and and you you did such great insights on this with, you know, the the Great Reset. I mean, is this all part of it? 
Um, I think so. Um, now, as, as far as the courts go, I put together uh, several <laughs> books on this. Um, one is called Endangered Speeches, and another is called Backfired, and I actually trace it through the courts. And um, originally, you had the lawyers be constitutionalists. In other words, you want to know what the Constitution means, you read the debates of the Continental Congress. Uh, and then you had evolution come along, uh, Charles Darwin, and then you had someone named um, Herbert Spencer, and he's known for coining the phrase survival of the fittest. And he began to apply evolution to other areas of academia. And it sort of became the, the in thing in the middle 1800s to try to say, well, everything's evolving. And so he introduced it into law. And so the head of the Harvard Law School was Christopher Columbus Langdell. And he came up with evolutionary law. It's called case precedent theory of law. Right. So instead of going back to find out what the founding fathers intended by reading the debates of the Continental Congress, you can just take the most recent law and broaden the definition of the words that are in it yeah. and just have it evolve. Now, uh, the Constitution has a provision to evolve. It's called the amendment process. And you need two-thirds of the state, states or two-thirds of the senators and congressmen, and then it's ratified by three-fourths. And so this is a super majority. So if we're going to have it evolve, we want to maintain that it's the will of the people. We don't want it to evolve in a courtroom with one judge broadening the definition of words. And it is, um, but unfortunately, Christopher Columbus Langdell, uh, Harvard uh, graduated Oliver, Wend Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And he is the chief original proponent of this evolutionary law on the Supreme Court. And he would um, make all kinds of crazy uh, decisions. One of them was a Buck v. Bell case where in Virginia they were euthanizing or they are sterilizing women that the state thought were mentally inferior. And the lawsuit was brought to stop this because they were sterilizing these individuals against their will and even without their knowledge. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, three generations of imbeciles is enough. So it's like, okay, just we're just gonna just Go ahead and without this person's will or consent, we're just going to say that there's three generations of people that aren't smart enough and we're just going to flat out sterilize them so they won't have any more kids that aren't smart. This wow. is, this is, and, and matter of fact, that case was cited in the Nuremberg trials right. by the Nazi officers that were being on trial for killing the Jews. And they're like, well, it's the state. The state can decide whether you're going to sterilize somebody or whether you're going to euthanize or you're going to kill them, the state, right? I mean, this is really bad. But anyway, so uh, Christopher Columbus Langdale and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., this gave birth to these Supreme Court justices that could care less about the Constitution. They could yeah. care less about what the Founding Fathers intended. They're just evolving it as fast as they can. And at that point, one of the justices in um, opposition said, why even, why even have a constitution? Why, if you're gonna make it say whatever you want, why even have one to begin with? Why don't you just say whatever you want? Let's just be a, a country ruled by, um, you know, five people on a court. Uh, why even I mean, you, go you, through the motions? Bill, Bill you look at, you look at uh, Everson versus the, you know, the school board. This was a five to four decision that, absolutely reversed the First Amendment, and now it becomes case law. And to contend and go back to what it was considered for 150 years without challenge is, it, that's, that's, a, that's a big hurdle. But yet the damage that that's done by Hugo Black and the majority opinion, uh, it, it's the same thing with Roe v. Wade. They, they call it precedent, you know? And yeah. So yeah. is that kind of the idea? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Hugo Black. He had never been a judge before in his life, other than one right. year as a police court judge. But he supported, he, he supported FDR with a new deal. 
Yeah, yeah, he supported FDR with the New Deal, and FDR rewarded him by putting him on the Supreme Court. And here's Hugo Black, a former KKK member, and he is the one who takes uh, religion out of state jurisdiction, puts it into the federal, and begins to evolve it. And um, devolve. Dri Daniel Drive. Daniel Drivesback uh, wrote a, a book, and in there he uh, cites how. Someone had written a letter to Hugo Black saying, uh, did you read the debates of the First Amendment before you made the decision to change its, its meaning? And he turned the letter over and he wrote a note to his law clerk, get me the debates of the First Amendment. Oh. And he hands it to the law oh, clerk. Wow. Here he is. He forever changes the meaning of the First Amendment. And originally, the first 10 amendments were simply handcuffs on the federal government. Right. And we know that because it says it, right? Congress shall make no law, limits no the law. federal government. Prohibitive. And then the, the, the preamble to the Bill of Rights, people don't realize there is a preamble to the Bill of Rights. It says to prevent an abuse of power by the federal government, certain restrictive clauses shall be put on it. So the Bill of Rights are nothing more than handcuffs on the federal government to keep it from becoming a big federalized Frankenstein monster, you know. And, and when they say that, that Congress shall make no law uh, uh, respecting the establishment of religion, their biggest fear was that there would be a state religion. But, but prior to Hugo Black and the majority opinion in 1947, you had like Maryland, which was Catholic. You had Pennsylvania that was what, Quaker? And I don't, I don't know all the different nuances. Uh, certainly you had um, Congregationalists in Massachusetts and that was, in a sense, the, the 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 faith of the colony. But all of them did away with that before the 1947 ruling, which proved that it belongs to the states to make that decision, yeah. and they were wise enough to be ecumenical. Is that is that a clear understanding of history? Yeah, I liken it to a racetrack with 13 lanes, and the different states ex expanded religious freedom at their own speeds. Some of them were way out in front, like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, and others were lagging in the back, like Connecticut and New Hampshire that had blue laws where everything was closed on Sunday. And But it was up to the states to decide. Sort of like today, some states have marijuana and others don't. Right Back then, some states gave a little more religious freedom and some didn't, but everybody right. knew the different areas of the country. And, and, the, and the purpose of the First Amendment, as well as the, as the first 10 amendments, were to limit the federal government. You know, I actually, Several of my books dissect that. It says Congress shall make no law. And of course, Congress back then was the only lawmaking body. They could not foresee that the president would make laws by executive orders and mandates. Right. You know, you go through the airport and it says, the president has issued a mandate that you guys like, we're not a dictatorship. Matter of fact, if you actually study it out, the purpose of the constitution was to prevent a president from ruling through mandates. Amen. That's the whole yeah, purpose well, and, of it, is to protect. And now protect. you have, yeah, now you have the, you know, um, legislating from the bench as well. And so, you know, all the branches of government are, are the, jamming the down on us. The judicial branch is making laws. They're not yeah. interpreting them. They're making them now. Yep. Is, that, is that a fair assessment, Bill? Yeah, yeah. They're um, broadening. So there's two ways to change laws. One is, is time intensive. You have to get a majority of the people elected to go to Congress and the Senate, and then you have to get a majority to vote in the president, and you have to pressure them to put through bills and sign bills and pass bills. It, it's real time intensive. There's an easier way. You just get one of these activist evolutionary judges to broaden the definition of words that are in existing laws and say, well, this will, you know, word now includes transgenders. I mean, the, the abortion, is, is the broadened definition of the right to privacy. Yeah. It's like, okay, you, you broaden the definite right to privacy to include killing unborn babies. It's like they, they'll, they'll, you know, so, um, but anyway, um, that's one of the things that I think we need to understand is that this current uh, candidate for the Supreme Court is an evolutionary just uh, person that could care less about what the founders intended is just pushing an agenda, just wanting it to evolve. And clearly, if this person cannot define life, cannot define race, cannot define um, gender, sex, gender, 
um, then that's what's going to be uh, in any decision that they would write. It would be against traditional definitions. That's one of the tenets of critical race theory is that there's no absolutes. And, and everything is evolving and changing. So it's like trying to nail jello to a tree because they believe that absolute truth, empirical data, scientific method, and the Enlightenment thinkers are all white man's constructs to suppress you know, the, the inferior races, which it, it's, it's wholly untrue because Western, Western ideals uh, originated from the Middle East. And, and, and that comes through the Protestant Reformation and it has it's no respecter of melanin content it it's a it's a it's an understanding of the nature of man versus nurture that we're sinful and we want to concentrate power but but you also debate truth and we believe in absolute truth and so when they cannot debate logically which is where you get the word logos into it you know in intellectual understanding if they can't debate that then they gather together in their minority groups to create political prowess, and then they suppress truth, and then you get propaganda, and you get censorship. And that's that's critical race theory. Well, and all of this stuff is tied to language, because that's, I mean, that's how you argue, is, yep. is by the understanding of words and things like that, and they're intentionally um, obscuring words and destroying our language for the purposes. And I think, you know, part of the whole Great Reset thing is, you know, we, we're going to break it, so that we can, you know, recreate it in our own image. Yeah, you've got to um, break it. But I'm I'm reading with my daughters. You know, we're doing a little, you know, after dinner reading thing of 1984. George Orwell, yeah, yeah. The um the end of the book, which people I think uh, don't read through, is where he goes through the language. You know, and like the appendix, and he and he describes the thought process behind them changing and reducing the language. And so most people skip, you know, skip over um, that at the end. But it's absolutely beautiful uh, because it, it shows it, – it'll, it'll make you think this is exactly what they're doing now. It's exactly – and that's supposed to be fiction, yeah. not, not a blueprint. Uh, Bill, do you, know, do you know the history of George Orwell? Can you share with the folks? Because he yeah, wasn't a conservative he, by any stretch. Right. Uh, he was in uh, London, and he uh, was um, – at first, there was this – enamored with getting rid of the kings that had existed in Europe and the class structure. And they thought that uh, everybody being equal would be wonderful, not realizing that you would just simply uh, replace it with another king uh, called a comrade or a chairman Mao. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things of um, uh, George Orwell uh, in his book, uh, and he talks about uh, the, the character named Winston. And uh, he is working in the government in the Department of Truth, the Ministry of Truth, but all it does is lie. And so this is double, he uses the word double speak. And so this is what we see with bills. So every time you see a bill named, it usually does the opposite of what it's named. Yeah. So the Affordable Care Act is right, really not affordable, right? You know, you, you pick it out, whatever it is that they want to get you to think it's one thing so that the politicians will feel bad if they vote against it and it'll look like, oh, you're voting against, you know, this person's rights, but you're... Um, so this character, Winston, uh, he is in an office and there's a pneumatic tube that you, like a bank where you put your deposit in and it sucks it up, right? Yeah. Well, this was a brand new invention in 1948. And so he's at his desk and the pneumatic tube comes down and it has a piece of history that he's supposed to edit. And he takes like a pen knife and he cuts out the old history and then he takes the old history and he puts it in another pneumatic tube and it's sucked down into the basement into an incinerator and it's called the memory hole. And so uh, George Orwell's character Winston said, every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten every picture has been repainted every statue and street building has been renamed every date has been altered history has stopped nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right i know of course that the past is falsified but it would never be possible for me to prove it even when i did the falsification myself after the thing is done no evidence remains the only evidence is inside my own mind and I don't know that any other human being shares my memories. 
everything faded into mist. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth. So once you get rid of God and get rid of absolute truth, all you have is political agenda. Yep. And if you can alter the truth, it's basically putting a political spin on history. But if it can help you to promote your agenda, and if there's no God, there's no absolute right or wrong, sure, go for it. And you go through history, and uh, in my book on socialism, I have chapters on this. Um, but Islam does this. Whenever Islam comes into a country, they destroy the previous history. Uh, matter of fact, um, if they find an artifact that might show the Jews actually had a temple in Jerusalem or that they had a King David or whatever, what's their response? Destroy the artifact. <clears throat> they don't right. care if it's true or not. They have their agenda is, is more important. Um, and then there was a um, uh, third century BC in China, uh, the Warring States period. An emperor wins, it's half a dozen different kingdoms, and one wins led by Qin Shi Huangdi, and he's being criticized for doing things differently than they had been done for centuries before, and he got tired of being criticized. And so he decided to destroy all records of how things were done before. And his chancellor, Li Si, in 213 BC, wrote in the basic annals of the first emperor Qin, it says, I, your servant, propose that all historians' records other than, other than Quinn's be burned. If anyone under heaven has copies of the classics of history, they shall deliver them to the governor for burning. Anyone who dares discuss the classics of history shall be publicly executed. Anyone who uses history to criticize the present shall have his family executed. Anyone who has failed to burn the books after 30 days of this announcement shall be sent to build the Great Wall. So this is sort of standard operating procedure you get rid of the past, you get people into a neutral where they don't have a memory of where they came from, and then you just brainwash them into what you have planned for them. Uh, this is evolutionary uh, thinking, but it's basically the, what we're witnessing with this Supreme Court candidate, um, yeah. that there's no ties to history, there's no ties to truth, it's just an agenda. You can change it uh, as necessary because your agenda is supreme. It's dangerous. and. Uh, no. I was, I was just going to say, on, on all your books, you, you footnote. What's the purpose of footnotes? Cite, uh, source citing. Why, why do you do that? And I know the answer, but I want folks to know that this is, this is Western civilization. This is, this is an attempt to preserve truth as opposed to destroy it. And, and you, you go wherever truth is going to lead you. You don't make up your own path because you're under the laws of nature and nature's God. So... Anyone destroying history, anyone destroying the past is someone that doesn't want to contend with truth. And, and that's where they said, let's throw off all constraints and, and remove God from the equation. And man does as he pleases and does what seems right in his own eyes. And these are all these utopian experiments that have led to billions of deaths. But anywhere you go in the world where you see a rescue mission or a hospital, it was put there for most intents by a Christian. Uh, uh, all, all of the things that the world would dismiss as not valuable, meaning the in, the infirmed, uh, you know, the, the homeless, it's it's Christians that reach out to the least of these, yep. and and taking care of babies and protecting life and and standing for truth as though uh, it, it's something worth dying for, more importantly, living for. It. Why do you footnote? Well, you th that people can research for themselves. So uh, you pub when scientists uh, have a new thing they've discovered, they publish their research, and other scientists will attempt to perform the same experiment. And if they can perform the same experiment, uh, then it, it it validates it. So you want to put all you want to document everything you did so that it can be replicated. So you put the footnotes in there so anybody else could read the same stuff that you've read and come to the same conclusion. And um, uh, I, I did want to mention uh, the, I read where the, the lady that came up with the 1619 project uh, fairly recently uh, said that the Civil War ended with, uh, in, 19, in 1865. And of course, uh, Anybody that's done any history knows that 
um, or she said it began. She said the Civil War began in 1865 when it really began in 1861 and ended in 1865. So uh, here, uh, and then it was the the lady that's up for the Supreme Court justice. They asked her about the Dred Scott case, and she said she was not familiar with it. So here she is, a no. first black female not familiar with the Dred Scott case. So uh, for years, I served as an advisor to the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation in St. Louis. Uh, Lynn Jackson, who's a direct descendant of Dred and Harriet Scott, is the head of it. Um, uh, she raised money and with uh, several of us were able to uh, let this momentum grow. And she was able to get approval for a statue of Dred and Harriet Scott, a big bronze statue, placed at the steps of the old courthouse in downtown St. Louis, right there under the shadow of the arch. And so we were there for the, the christening of the statue and they pulled the sheet off it and the you know mayor gives a proclamation, whatever. And, um, and so, uh, so, I mean, this is, uh, uh, Dred Scott was a slave in Missouri. He went with his master to Wisconsin because it was in the army and Wisconsin was a free state and he could have just walked away but he stayed with his master, comes back to Missouri, and uh, he had a friend. There was a Congressman Blow, and uh, the, the wife started the first kindergarten in America, right? Um, and um, my dad was a historian, and so the, the Blow family was from the Carondelet area, which is a little community south of downtown St. Louis that predates the city. And anyway, um, and so they bring the lawsuit and uh, that he should be freed and it works its way up through the courts. Uh, he's finally gets to the Supreme Court and Roger Taney, who was the Supreme Court justice appointed by Andrew Jackson, a Democrat, um, yep. said that, that slaves were property yep. and that, uh, that he could be bought and sold. And it's, it's the most racist decision uh, where Roger Taney says that the Negro might justly be reduced to slavery for his own benefit. So this is the Democrat. This is Andrew Jackson appointee. So we're, we're having an appointee right now being considered for the Supreme Court. Well, this was a Democrat appointee uh, back then and uh, an extremely racist decision. And, uh, you know, of course, now they're trying to uh, erase their history, but it was, you know, Republican. Interesting guy is um, during this time that the Democrats pushed through the fugitive slave law. And so if a slave escaped to the North, you had to snitch on your neighbor and recapture the slave and have him be shipped back to the South. And so a, a slave that escaped was named Joshua Glover, and he was recaptured and put in the Milwaukee jail. And 5,000 white Wisconsins storm the jail and free Joshua Glover. And two days later in 1854 in March, they go to Whit Ripon, R-I-P-O-N, Ripon, Wisconsin, and those exact that's where the, same that's people... That's where the Republican Party started. Those, exactly. Those same people start the Republican Party. There we go. And, In a congregational and, church. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know... The, I'm paying the, attention, Bill. I'm paying attention. I'm a good student. Yeah. Tell my yeah, teachers it, that. <laughs> so it's important right. that... I mean, I, I'm, I'm putting together notes for a book, but I'm going through how... You know, the people that contributed to the abolitionist movement uh, that to a large degree, they were white people. Um, but I tell I point out that it's not a skin color issue. It's a mental thinking issue. In other words, you, you are a spirit, a mind and a body. And your mind is like a super fancy computer. It's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like the computer case which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. Imagine if I were to say red computers are better than green computers. It's like, uh, really doesn't matter what color the computer or what color the iPhone is. What matters is what apps are on it, what software's on it, right? Doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is. It's what behavioral software is running on their brain. Yeah. Is it love your enemies, do good to them that that curse you, bless, you know, uh, turn the other cheek, whatever you do, the least is my brother, you've done it to me. And, or is it this selfish, you know, you look at the critical race theory, um, it wants to cancel, 
your enemies, where the Bible says to love your enemies. Critical race theory says you, you want, you, there's no forgiveness. Even if no. somebody is a super duper woke person and you discover a tweet they did 10 years ago, they are canceled and destroyed. They, they're, uh, and there's no chance of redemption. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, really, I wanna be really woke in the future. No, sorry, your life is over. You're, you're ostracized, you're kicked out, there's no forgiveness. And then what do you do with Ezekiel, where it says that the child shall not pay for the parent's sins. Yep. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You don't make some little kid pay for something that one of their ancestors did, right? Yep. That's not the gospel. And so it's the most, basically, wokeism, critical race theory is opposite gospel. Now, what did Jesus say that somebody has to do if they want to be forgiven? You they have, have to, to forgive. confess their sins. Yeah, well, you have to forgive, yeah. But, it, and so but the, you have father, to confess your sins and forgive. He, he who's forgiven much loves much. Yeah, the, the, our father that we pray every day, it says, forgive us our trespasses as we, we forgive forgive those that are, so, so to the same degree. So if you are going to not forgive somebody and make them pay, there's even a parable where the master has a servant and says, pay, you owe me $100,000. He says, I can't. The master forgives him. He goes out and he catches one of his other servants and says, you owe me 10 bucks. I'm going to throw you in jail. And and he's like mean to him. And the other servants go to the master and say, hey, that guy you just forgave 100 grand. Look look what he did. The master pulls him in and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you that huge amount. And you wouldn't even forgive this other guy a teeny amount. And You know, Bill, who, the, Bill, real quick. The only time in that parable, the Lord never called him wicked when he had a debt he couldn't repay in 10 lifetimes. He only called him wicked when he wouldn't forgive. Yep. Yeah, and there's another one where it says, leave your gift at the altar. Don't yeah, make up with your friend. Inside. Then come back and offer your gift. Uh, the the <clears throat> gospel over and over again says, you, if you want to be for... So um, last week I spoke at the 50th anniversary Sarasota Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. And they had a whole big room at the Hyatt Hotel down there on the waterfront packed and uh, with all the important people of Sarasota. And, uh, I was able to share the platform with uh, Joy Irwin, the daughter of James Irwin, who was in Apollo 15 and left the Bible on the moon. And, um, and James Irwin's famous line was, Jesus walking on earth is more important than man walking on the moon. I love that. And then I shared the podium with um, Ricky Bolden, a former Chicago Browns uh, football player Okay. And I'm sorry, uh, Cleveland Browns football player. And, uh, but he gave a great uh, short message. He says, Jesus says to love your brothers. But what if there's somebody that you really don't th think they're close enough to be called a brother? You just call them a neighbor. Well, Jesus says, love your neighbor. What if there's somebody, they're not a brother, they're not a neighbor. And matter of fact, they're your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemy. It's like you can't get away from it. You got to love your brother. You got to love your neighbor. You got to love your enemy. Our side of the page is you have to love. You have Amen. to love everybody. Even if you've been treated bad, you have to love. Who was the person that was the most innocent that was treated the worst? Jesus. Here he is, the, the only begotten son of God, never sinned, and yet he's getting this death penalty of crucifixion. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. If he's our savior, if he's our example, we have to forgive. Critical race theory says don't forgive. Wokeism says don't forgive. You gotta punish them. You gotta make them pay. You gotta make their kids pay. You gotta make their grandkids pay. And then they can never pay enough, right? It yeah. is the opposite of the gospel. And these churches that are getting into wokeism, it's like crazy. It's like they're, Bill, they're adopting another gospel. Bill, elaborate on that because folks tuning in, um, and, and we've seen critical race theory, we've seen wokeism infiltrate every institution in America. But sadly, where, where truth should, should be protected and celebrated and proclaimed, uh, we are allowing an ideology that dismisses absolute truth to infiltrate the church. You've traveled the country. How have you seen critical race theory and wokeism infiltrate the church 
uh, especially the evangelical church, you and I and, and Bryce being uh, um, among the members of the evangelical world, what have you seen and, and what is concerning to you? And then also, what is it that you've seen that's hopeful uh, in the landscape? Yeah, well, uh, the, uh, the pastors of those woke churches don't want anybody to say anything bad about them. They would rather have other people not say anything bad about them than to be able to have God say good things about them. They care about the praise of men. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a, a communist defector to the United States named uh, Yuri Bezmenov. And mm-hmm. he, in 1980, you may have seen the video um, where he, you know, had gone to India. He was doing critical race theory. For those not familiar, basically, critical race theory is you, patriotism is the enemy. You want to divide a country into subgroups so that you can pit the subgroups against each other. And then when they break out into violence, everybody panics in fear and trades freedom for security to some politician that promises to restore order. But in the process, they take away your guns, take away your rights, take away your freedoms, take away your money. And when the dust settles, you have a dictatorship. And uh, I go through all the different instances of history of this process. But anyway, so Yuri Bezmenov was in India, and then he defects to America. And then he does an interview. Uh, and he says that people think a KGB like James Bond. He goes, no, it's a whole lot simpler. We just simply observe all the groups in a country and begin to categorize them as victims and oppressors, haves and have nots. And then you begin to pit them against each other to create this violence. So he says, the first step is to identify all these groups and infiltrate them. He called it a demoralizing stage, but it's had 20 years. And he says, this is where they would... uh, identify the groups and then the influencers of these groups, the public opinion molders in media, in education, and in the pulpit. And then you would infiltrate them and pull, invite them to your socialist parties and begin to lobby them to put socialism in their movies and their school textbooks and in their sermons. Hmm. And then the next stage, he says, is a destabilizing phase, stage where you get the country to spend, spend crazy spending, just to really just to bankrupt the country. The third is you have a crisis that you can fan into a flame, some incident that, that stirs passion and emotion and violence, and then you do your coup or your rigged election, and you replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And dozens of countries fell to this. Um, but the infiltrating in the churches is interesting. And even Congressman Albert Herlong, uh, Florida, in 1963, read into the congressional record the 45 goals and tactics the communists had to take over America. And one of them was infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Right, social it, justice, and it begins. It begins with that language. We've seen it here um, locally. I, I've witnessed it prior to the pandemic and things really hitting, you know, hitting the fan, so to speak. Is I, I saw it when, I think, through some good-hearted intentions, churches were starting to adopt in order to what they felt like is to appeal to the people that are coming in and seeking. You know, let's let's adopt the term social justice. So let's adopt diversity and inclusion and language of our day now. And that's where they start to they start to lose. There's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent 11 years in Soviet gulag camps, and he said in 1975, "I call upon America to be more careful, prevent those from falsely using the struggle for social justice to lead you down a false road." And so, one of the people that was caught up in this is Manning Johnson. And he, in the 1930s, was a black man who became a communist for 10 years, even ran for Congress in New York as a communist. And then he saw some successful black businessmen wanting to build a real estate development with fountains and shops and bridges, and it was going to be great. But then he saw these communists undermining their whole project. And then he saw some successful black businessmen wanting to have a hospital. They said, Jews have hospitals, Catholics have hospitals. We want to have out. We want it to be first class. And he witnessed these communists undermining all their efforts until he finally concluded, you know what? You communists really don't want to help my people. You're just using us to sow division for your agenda. So he leaves them. He testifies before Congress. He writes a book 
color, communism, and common sense, and Archibald <laughs> Roosevelt, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, the writes the foreword to it. And he talks about being trained to throw a brick at the police and run and hide and all those different things. But then he talked about the churches. And he said how they originally went into the churches in the minority communities and tried to get them to spit on the Bible and kick the Bible and deny God. But he says they couldn't because the people in the minority communities were too attached to the Bible. So he says their plan then was simply to change the gospel. And he writes this in 1958, he says, the new line went like this, Jesus the carpenter was a worker like the communists. He was against the money changers, the capitalists, the exploiters of that day. That is why he drove them from the temple. Communists are the modern day fighters against the capitalists or money changers. If Jesus were living today, he would be persecuted like the communists. It's like, forget the fact we're all sinners going to hell and Jesus, the only begotten son of God died on the cross to pay for our sins. Forget all that. Jesus was just an activist, right? And so here they began to push this and, and uh, even George Soros, there was a Washington Times article that says George Soros rented uh, evangelical leaders, right? So this idea that you want to infiltrate. Now, the bottom line is. I, I want you, what, before you line? get to the bottom line, please, I want you to elaborate on what George Soros did, how he infiltrated. Um, j- just a couple of examples, because I've heard as much as the Gospel Coalition, um, even Tim Keller. I, I, you probably don't like to name names, but through through his alphabet soup of, of sub-organizations that he funds, uh, they were able to get funding and get influence in the evangelical community through that. Yep. Yeah, uh, there's a gentleman from New Zealand named Trevor Loudon, and he did a... Uh, video called Enemies Within, um, and I'm sure you can find it online, um, but he, he names names in there. Um, there's two, two motivations for human nature, uh, positive and negative. Um, one is uh, you have a positive, if somebody does what you want, uh, you reward them positively, whether it's praise among men or whether it's financial contributions. And if they don't do what you want, then it's a negative. Uh, you ostracize them, you kick them out, you take the, have the media say bad things about them, or you have uh, financial repercussions or uh, threats. Uh, in Chicago, they called it the bribe or the bullet, silver or lead, right? You yeah, do what they yeah, want, here's some silver. You don't throw it in, there's the bullet, up. right? And, yeah. um, and, and so they, they, a lot of times they'll go into uh, churches and the they they they'll, they manipulate the desire for the pastor to fit in and be recognized. Um, you know, you've been on both sides of the the political aisle and the ministry aisle. And um, uh, if a prominent politician comes into the church, the pastor's like, "Wow, I, I must be pretty important." A politician comes to my church, and you know, uh, not realizing the politician's like, "Yeah, I hope I get noticed." And recognized from the front, that might that might correspond to votes, you know. And um, uh, but there's a um, a flattering that goes on, as well as contributions. Uh, it's like, okay, here's a large donation to your organization, and you say, oh, gee, thanks a lot. And th- there might be a, a month or a year goes by, and then the phone rings, and then yeah. it's that person, and they're saying, hey, um, we'd like we'd like you to do this. We'd like you to support this. We'd like you to put your name on with this movement. Um, I mean, what are you going to do? You've accepted the money. The Bible says be careful who you take money from because it's, like, in a sense, a bribe. And the bribe turns the heart of those yeah. that receive it. And, All um, money talks is just a matter of when. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, um, but that's one of the, the tactics. You know, I um, uh, the whole, you may have seen the video of kids on a starting line and the yeah. Moderator says, okay, if you're from a home where you have a mom and a dad, you have a special advantage, take a step forward. And then they say, well, if you're from a home that's in a safe neighborhood, take a step forward. And if you're this, that, and the other, take a step, take a step, until pretty soon some kids are way in the front and the other kids are still on the starting line. And the camera looks at their faces and they're like all you know, feeling bad. And, and it's a pretty convincing video until you ask yourself the question, what's the finish line? Yeah. It's, it's obviously a race. So, so what's the finish line? Is the finish line how much stuff you can accumulate before you die and leave it all behind? 
Or is the finish line standing before God and him saying, yeah, I blessed you with stuff. What did you do with it? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was sick and in prison. Did you visit me? Everybody gets a different amount. And what did you do with it? Yeah. You see, if there's no God, then it's just a selfish, how much stuff I can, can I get? But if you realize that, that someday you're going to stand before God, then you're going to be like, I want to help everybody. I want to do, do good to the, the, the poor. Whatever you, whatever you do to the least these my brethren, you've done it to me. You want, in other words, instead of teaching critical race theory in the schools, we should send evangelists and youth ministers into the schools to get these kids born again. Because yeah. once they feel the love and acceptance from God, then they're going to want to love everybody, irregardless of race. They're going to want to sacrifice and help and, and, and give. And, and that's the answer. It's yeah, a motivator different. of love rather than a motivator of guilt. I mean, what's the, what's, the, what's the woke motivator anyway? It's like, okay, if, if you don't pretend like you like this person and do something to them, you will be canceled and kicked out of the group. And so it's like, okay, I'm not doing, I could, I could care less about that person. All I care about is I don't want to get canceled. So, okay, I'll, I'll do something for that person. But they, you don't love them and they know you don't love them. It, it's just, you're doing it out of guilt and afraid of being canceled. Yep. Wouldn't you rather have somebody be nice to you because they love you? Right. Yeah. Bill, uh, for the sake of time, because we've been keeping you and you're on the East Coast, let's, I, and I, we do this every time on Federer Friday and I love it. I, I I, it's part of actually the last part of the original question I asked you when you started sharing was, you know, we we see the church being infiltrated with critical race theory, but what are some positive things you've seen? And and then close us after you share that, how the church is waking up, because you're traveling the country, you're seeing it, how the church is waking up, and then close us with a word of of, of hope and, and then uh, close us in prayer. I love I love listening to you pray. You spend a lot of time in the presence of the Lord. Would that be all right? Is that too much yeah, to ask? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, the gospel, Leviticus 19.15, says you shall show no uh, injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. So here's God saying, you, you don't bend over backwards to do extra for the poor just because they're poor. You, you're not going to bend justice for them, and you're not going to bend justice for the, the person that's mighty. You want to be fair that the God we serve is not a respecter of persons. And you love everybody exactly the same. And God loves everybody exactly the same. And he's the one that decided how high we uh, we would grow. Uh, He decided how much hair we'll have on our heads. I'm 64. I certainly wish that he would have put into my jeans a little more hair on my head. Um, but he, he's the one that decides what though. race we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God decides all of that. And um, anyway, uh, but in, in closing, um, yeah, we, we just need to focus on the Lord and um, realize that. Um, Have you seen this he, across the country? Oh, yeah. Uh, I am. Uh, a couple things I'm seeing is local, local, local. More pastors are having oh, awesome. members of their church run for school board. Yeah. They're unrelated. I was in Missoula, Montana at um, Pastor Bruce Spear at his church, Cross Point Church, and he has a member of his church on the school board, another one that's running. Oh, I was in uh, Virginia and Melvin Adams. Uh, he was a former Virginia state rep, and he started a group called the Noah Webster Educational Foundation. And right there on his website, it's how to run for school board. Love it. Right, I was, you know, in Texas, I was with David Barton. I was with all these different people, and and they all are talking about how to, and it's it's pretty uh, significant because I ran for Congress three times, had to raise millions of dollars, and if you tell people about that, they're like, that's so far, I can't even imagine. I'm not going to do anything politically, but if you say, look, forget that national stuff, you drive by that school building every day. Do you know they're teaching transgendered? boys and girls bathrooms, boys competing in girls sports, drag queen story hour. Are you in favor of all that? No. Do you know that school board member got elected by less votes than there are in your church? Do you know if you just got a half a dozen churches in your neighborhood and simply picked and agreed upon somebody, you could vote those bad school board members out and put your good ones in like overnight? I mean, it's a doable thing. And plus, um, Jesus says, 
if you sit by and, and let one of these little ones that believes me to stumble better than a millstone be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. So you, you literally have Jesus saying, okay, in that school, these kids are being taught something that I would never teach. And I've shared it before. Their tactic is to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. If you're really yeah. Christian, you will tolerate this LGBTQ plus agenda being taught to the kids. Question, would Jesus teach that? Jesus said in the beginning, God made them male and female. So you're telling me if I'm really Christian, I'll tolerate them teaching stuff to kids that Jesus would never teach. So, so if I'm really Christian, I won't act like Christ. Yet Jesus says, if you let them teach that, it's better that a millstone be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. I'd rather go with what Jesus says rather than what somebody else tells me what they think that, that Jesus wants. And um, anyway, uh, you know, there is a side of Jesus that's tough. And you read the gospel, his first sermon ended with them wanting to push him off a cliff. Yeah. Another sermon ends with them picking up stones to stone him. Right? Another time they're like, you know, he has to walk through the crowd and they're trying to get him. And, and then he goes to dinner uh, at someone's house and the person notices that Jesus didn't wash his hands. And Jesus says, uh, you Pharisees are more concerned about the outside of the cup and not the inside. You're like a tomb, a grave that's really pretty on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and all impurities. And, and then, then the lawyer says, well, Jesus, by saying that, you're insulting us lawyers. He goes, let me tell you about you lawyers. You, you heap burdens on people too heavy to carry. Don't even lift a finger yourself. And he lays into them. And then the chapter ends. And you wonder if they ever got around to eating. You sort of think that Jesus was pushed out onto the street. This is our Jesus. To the prideful, he was tough as nails. But to the humble, he was as loving and can be, as can be. Amen. God resists Amen. the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we need to realize that there, there is a backbone that we have to have. We love everybody, but, and every parent has to face this, right? You love your kids, but if you really love them, there's a, there's a time when you got to stand up. Every pastor has to face this. You have a benevolence program and you help people, but then some people like want to milk the system and yeah. they wanna, they'll drain the whole church if you let them. And it's like, no, you, you and, and so it's a tough thing, but you have to learn how to uh, be loving, but also realize that God's a just God. And, and he, um, he forg Jesus didn't get rid of the law. He just paid the penalty for us breaking it. But um, anyway, so across the country, I do see people, and since they're not related to, they're not reading from the same book, it's the Holy Spirit telling them, get involved locally. Um, and so that, that's one thing that's hopeful. Uh, second is I see a lot of young people, you know, yeah. you, you know, Charlie Kirk and others, but I'll go to, I was at a, a church in Houston this uh, past week. Um, it's called Grace Woodlands. The pastor is Steve Riggle. Um, and the whole church, the, the pastoral staff is like in, in their 30s and younger. Uh, they're Hispanic and, you know, Anglo, but they, they'll, they'll sing a praise, uh, a chorus of the praise song in, in English and they'll sing it in Spanish and they go back and forth. It's, it's really wonderful. And, um, but, but there's so many young people there and he is not afraid of addressing the issues. And, um, but it's encouraging to me and I see this. And, and then you, you run into young people that are like chomping at the bit. They, they, they wanna get involved in what's going on in the country. Yep. Um, and so this is true. I'm convinced it's, um, you know, what are the stories we love best in the Bible? It's where things look hopeless and God raises up little nobodies with faith and courage. Amen. And so whether it's, you know, an 80-year-old Moses against Pharaoh or a teenager David against Goliath or Gideon against, you know, the, the, the Midianites. The massive, yeah. And, and so it's like God loves to wait till things look hopeless. Then he rolls up his sleeves and he, he uses little nobodies who are small in their own eyes but big in faith and courage. And, well, and it's just our turn. And, um, uh, you know, I um, spoke up in uh, Pennsylvania actually at a Mennonite church and the um, just loving as can be church and the, and the ladies had the little bonnets on and, and, and the one uh, uh, young woman uh, that I was visiting with was going over to Syria to work with the refugees. Uh, and when, you know, this was several years ago and, and I was talking about how dangerous it is. And she says, oh yeah, they showed us a video 
of the ISIS coming into a town and chopping off heads. And then they, they chopped, they had that one person and they said, if you it, deny Christ or we'll chop your head off. And on the video, the guy denies Christ, they chop his head off anyway, and they chuckle. They laugh about it. Ha, 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 And she said, they showed us this video to say, look, if you're going to go over to Syria, you may die, and you just have to make the decision before you go that yeah. you're not going to deny Jesus, even if they say, deny Jesus, or I'll chop your head off. You say, okay, this is my time to go. But I thought, man, this is just a young woman, right? And, and from yeah. this little Mennonite community going over there and... and because there's a need. To me, this is this is encouraging. This is God yeah. putting it on the hearts of people to say, look, I, I want to make my life count for the Lord. I'm trusting him. He'll keep me alive as long as he wants me alive, but I'm going to be doing his will. And um, anyway. Amen. You praise, were say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, praise God, though, that the new rebels are conservative Christians amongst the young now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really it's starting yeah. to bubble up, which is yeah. exciting, you know. Yeah, and and young people want want a roadmap out of this yeah. misery, and they yeah. want a hope in a future, and they're they're tiring of churches that are are uh, placating, and 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 ad- adapting to culture instead of driving it. They're, uh, they're there's brave. a uh, pastor, you know, nearby our community that um, you know, young guy, um, you know, sitting down with a friend of mine over coffee, saying that. No, Jesus is a socialist and trying to argue for that. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's 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 happening. And, and I think, again, praise God that these kids are starting to yeah, wake starting up. starting to wake up. Bill, why don't you close us in prayer, especially for the young that are, are be, you know, they're, they'll be led by a little child, the scripture says. And it, it almost seems as though this is a an awakening of the youth uh, across the country. And it, and it seems like the church is slow to respond. Uh, maybe also pray for an awakening of the church to come alongside these young people who want to hope in a future and and see the the roadmap that is before them and do believe in absolute truth. Maybe if you could close us in prayer, if, if that inspires you, if not, go wherever the Lord leads you, because I love no, listening no. to you pray. Close us in prayer, Bill. All right. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, and we lift up, uh, as Pastor Rob mentioned, uh, the young people. And Lord, we just pray right now that your Holy Spirit touch uh, those in their teens, those in their 20s, those in their 30s. Lord, just stir their heart. Uh, let them yes. know that you have a call on their life. That, Lord, that you know every dirty backroom deal, that every corrupt global reset uh, politician and every uh, wicked person's doing, you know all that. Yet you chose for them to be alive right now. Yeah. You could have haven't been born at any other time in world history, but you chose them to be alive right now, and you have a plan to use them. Lord, just put it in their heart to to not rest until they're fulfilling your call on their life. Lord, give them a, a holy dissatisfaction if they're in the wrong spot, that they just can't be content in that spot, and draw them like a magnet toward your perfect will. Lead people across their paths to guide them and encourage them. Close the doors you want closed and open the doors you want open. But I thank you, Lord, that you will open the doors that no man can shut for these young men and women. Lord, I pray for the pastors. I pray, Lord, that they don't care about being praised and honored um, in any type of group setting. Lord, just remind them. And may they not be sucked into the unscriptural, uh, as the Apostle Paul said, someone comes and preaches another gospel and you receive it and, and you know, that, that you shouldn't uh, believe another gospel. And, and um, so, Lord, I pray that no matter how nice they doctor up the socialism, that, that socialism is counterfeit New Testament church. Yep. The difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. The early church voluntarily sold their property, laid at the feet of the church. They didn't have the government involuntarily take away their property and lay, lay it at the feet of Pilate. Lord, uh, may these pastors realize that socialism is a counterfeit Christianity. And, um, and so uh, we thank you, Lord, for moving by your Holy Spirit right now, uh, touching the hearts of all those that are watching and listening and uh, let them know that you love them 
If they're going through personal struggles right now, Lord, send deliverance to them, send financial blessings to them, send health to their bodies. I speak peace to their minds. Lord, I rebuke the devil off their lives and I just let your, your healing flow through your Holy Spirit and may the angels of God bring in the answers to their prayers and protect them and quench every fire dart of the wicked one. Yes. Lord, I thank you that there are good things ahead for each and every person watching tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Bill, um, as we sign off, how do folks get more of you? Uh, give, us, give us some links. Well, thanks. Um, AmericanMinute.com uh, is my website, AmericanMinute.com. I send out a daily email. Sometimes it's not every day, and sometimes it's longer than a minute. Uh, but you can sign up for it there, AmericanMinute.com. And I've got lots of different books. Uh, one that I've been talking about a lot lately is the one on socialism. Uh, so, again, AmericanMinute.com. You know, Bill, I think uh, on Federal Fridays, let's feature a book each Friday, and, and uh, we'll discount it uh, to our listeners. And, uh, you know, that way they can get some of the source material and have the opportunity to educate themselves. Um, so let's, let's plan on that. And then I would just say to all the folks out there, uh, what a joy it is to listen to Bill Federer. And then I, if you have a topic as we're approaching another Friday, just email us at info at godspeak.com that you would maybe like Bill to cover. And as we get that email, um, if, if it fits within the time frame, we'd love to ask those questions of Bill because like I've told everybody, you're the most underutilized asset in America, you and Bob McEwen. So, Bill, thank you again for another Friday. It's been wonderful. I, I've, I've never ceased to learn something new from you every time I sit with yep. you, and I am grateful for you. You've blessed my life more than you know, and so thank you, Bill. Well, you're kind, and Rob, Bryce, great to be with you, and bless you and your families. All right, we'll thank see you, you next Friday, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. All right. All right. Good night. All right. Well, folks, uh, that was Bill Federer and uh, another Federer Friday. And like I said, uh, next Friday, just info at godspeak.com. Send us a question you want us to ask of Bill. We could do that, and we'll try to feature one of his books each week. Last time we did that, uh, they they got inundated and ran out of uh, of stock, and I (laughs) don't want to do that to his wife. She's precious. She's, She's a sweetheart. So, uh, but but we'll, we'll we'll organize it better. But you can still send the questions at info. Anything you want to say before we sign uh, off? No, he's always awesome, and uh, I I do I take notes, and you yeah. know I, I, if I get one or two things that my brain retains, you know I'm that much smarter. It's Amen. awesome. Well, uh, we'll see you next week. We'll start Monday bright and early. Uh, we'll we'll have we got a number of guests lined yeah, up. We have I mean, a great week coming. Yeah, we're doing uh, we're, Larry Elder. Larry Elder. We got five days a week set. Yeah. And, and it's it's amazing. I I thought it'd be hard to get guests, but. It seems like folks are really blessed by it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's working out well. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you Monday. God bless you. Good night. Good night.